Friends, if you have your Bible, please turn with me in them to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, we're looking again at the miracle of Jesus feeding the 5,000. It's our third and uh, final time looking at that miracle. And um, whenever we slow down in a passage like we uh, have done the past few weeks, uh, I hope that you are being more and more convinced uh, that this is uh, a good thing to do, that it's good to uh, pick familiar passages of scripture and to slow down, to spend time steeping in them for longer meditation and reflection. Um, just to remind you where we've been, two weeks ago, we looked at this passage and saw Jesus's invitation to come and rest. Uh, for those who are tired, for those who are exhausted, Jesus invites you to come and rest in him. Uh, last week, we looked at Jesus's invitation to the banquet for us to come and receive the spread, the meal, the table he has prepared for us. And this morning, we're looking at Jesus's invitation to come and receive his compassion. And so I invite you, if you are able to stand with me for the reading of God's word. We stand as an act of worship for our physical posture shows the posture of our hearts. We read and receive his word with reverence. Mark chapter six, beginning with verse 30, reading until verse 44. Hear now God's word. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw the great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Please be seated. Pray with me now, dear friends. Father, we ask your blessing upon the preaching of your word, for we know that without uh, you attending it, uh, without your preparing our hearts to receive, without you readying our minds um, and opening our spiritual ears, uh, we know that this word uh, would not uh, be powerful and life-giving as it is. So I pray that we would receive it, and Holy Spirit, that you would speak to us through it and encourage us, and pray that you would open us up to do surgery on our hearts that we might um, come before you exposed, vulnerable, uh, as we are needy, uh, and that we would know that you are all sufficient for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One of the things we've been saying the past few weeks is that this miracle of Jesus feeding the 5,000 is unique and that it's the only miracle that Jesus performs that's recorded in all four Gospels. Now, that's what makes it unique, but it's also what makes it familiar 
It's what makes the miracle so popular, which is why so many people know about this. But there's a drawback to a miracle when it's so popular, when it's so well known, and that's people who come and read it, they think that um, there are a plethora, a whole range of life lessons and principles that they can extract from it, sometimes while missing the very point of why God gave us this story. Uh, knowing that I was going to spend multiple weeks preparing uh, and preaching from this passage, you know, I did a lot of research and along the way came across uh, all kinds of various lessons uh, that people say this story teaches. And I just want to read a few. You know, some people say the point of this miracle is that Jesus asks, asks us uh, to use what we have and then he'll take care of the rest. That's a good lesson. Others say, even after a long day, Jesus has time to help. Here's the third one. Jesus gave thanks before the meal. So even someone who has everything should be thankful. When I give what little I have away, it multiplies in return with leftovers. Now I read these and there may be some bits and aspects of truth to this, but is that really the reason why Mark recorded this miracle for us? I don't believe it is. I think if we think this way, we're actually missing the larger point that Mark is making because Mark, he's not interested in giving you moralistic lessons about your life. Mark is interested in showing you a portrait of who Jesus is. You see, the gospels are written to show you Jesus so that you might find Jesus both believable and beautiful. And so if we are to understand the gospels and the intention for which they were written, we must come to the scriptures and ask, how does this show me that Jesus is believable and beautiful? And that's what I want us to see happening this morning. Here's the gospel truth. The one sentence summary for you to walk away with today. Jesus invites you to come and receive his merciful compassion. This is what you need to hear today. Jesus, this morning, invites you to come and receive his merciful compassion. Dear friends, he is the compassionate one. Now we begin uh, by making this clarification. The call of the gospel, the very basis of the good news is that Jesus desires you to come to him to receive his compassion. Jesus is not asking you to come to him and make a contribution. The gospel, the good news is not about what you can do for Jesus, but what he has come to do for you. So this morning, we come and we want to explore the compassion of our Savior. So we're going to start from the very beginning. Look with me at verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. Now, okay, remember what we said. Jesus had sent the disciples out on a mission trip uh, earlier in Mark chapter 6. He sent them out two by two. And their trip's itinerary was jam-packed. I mean, they were doing all sorts of things. They were casting out demons. They were healing the sick. They were preaching the gospel. So you can imagine they were exhausted. They were tired. They were spent. I mean, some of us go on mission trips, and we do a couple of VBS. We do a little bit of body worship, and we are spent for the entire day. But these disciples, they were pouring themselves out in ministry. And they come back, and they're exhausted, and they're telling Jesus about all that they did. And you can imagine Jesus saying, man, that sounds exhausting. And he has compassion on the disciples. And so how does he respond? He gives an invitation, verse 31. He says, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. He's saying, come and find some time for rest and relaxation. 
Now, Jesus is so moved in his heart by his disciples because for Jesus, what's more important than busyness for him is intimacy with him. And so he calls them to rest in him. You know, Jesus isn't like Pharaoh. Do you remember Pharaoh and how he made the lives of the Israelites more and more miserable by demanding that they produce when they were slaves in Egypt? Jesus is not like Pharaoh. Jesus is not like Rehoboam. Rehoboam was Solomon's son. And if you remember in 1 Kings, Rehoboam made the yoke upon Israel heavy and hard. Jesus isn't like Rehoboam. He's gentle and lonely. He's kind and caring. He desires rest for his weary disciples. So verse 32 says, and they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. The disciples in Jesus, they try to steal away to a desolate place, a wilderness where no one can find them so they can rest and recharge. The introverts in the room know exactly what it's like to try to steal away from a party in order to get the rest and the isolation and the recharging that you need. So they make plans and they're headed away, but the plans are ruined. They were ruined when the crowd sees them. Verse 33, now many saw them going and recognized them and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. It's an interesting detail to see the crowd so eager, so excited to see Jesus and his disciples that they go running to see him. Because outside of exercise, you don't really see adults running, do you? Running is the thing that children do, excited, eager children who've had too much sugar. During our fellowship hour, who is it that is running up and down the stairs, through the fellowship hall, up to the sanctuary, up to the classrooms, out the back, in through the front, back to the side? It's the children. Adults don't run unless they have to. But this crowd full of adults, they see Jesus, they see disciples, and they run. And this shows something of the popularity that Jesus had. Jesus and his disciples were increasing in fame and notoriety and reputation. Now, some of you are familiar with uh, K-pop culture. And in particular, you may know that fans of K-pop groups are, uh, tend to be a little obsessive. Uh, maybe stalkerish is a better word. Uh, there's a reason that you call celebrities idols, Some of these fans will wait outside people's homes in order to get a picture. They'll find out their flight schedules and go to the airport and wait for them to return. I mean, this is the type of pressure and popularity um, that the disciples in Jesus have. I mean, Jesus and the 12 are like a 13-member K-pop group, I guess is what I'm saying, Uh, which I looked up. There is a 13-member K-pop group. Ironically, the 13-member K-pop group is named 17. Um, Not sure if they figured that one out there, but (laughs) basically because of their fame, uh, the crowds, they're relentlessly following after Jesus. And as a result, their plans to hide away, rest a while, they're ruined, they're sabotaged. Have you ever made plans like this to enjoy some alone time? Maybe it's to enjoy a date night without the kids, just you and the spouse. Maybe you need plans to rest from your spouse and so you just want a little time for some self-care. And it gets rudely interrupted. It's not an emergency, but it's just somebody's being selfish. So they interrupt the plans you've made. And what do you feel? You feel disappointment, frustration, impatience, bitterness, maybe a little anger. Well, that's not the heart of Jesus. 
We read in verse 34, when he went ashore, he saw the crowd. Now the crowd, if you remember, uh, is 5,000 men, but including women and children, likely numbered about 15,000. And so this is a, an overwhelming, very draining uh, scene to witness. Put yourself in the place of Jesus. I mean, Jesus is headed out with his closest friends. They need time to rest mentally, spiritually, physically, emotionally. They're trying to hide away with his disciples. The disciples are the 12 people that he spent so much time with. He's grown in intimacy with. They've eaten their meals together. They've traveled. They've gone through so much suffering together. The crowd, the crowd are a bunch of strangers. He's never met the people in the crowd. He wants to steal away with the disciples, but the crowds interrupt. They intercept him. These people who care nothing for him, nothing about his privacy, nothing about his personal space. They're literally running to ruin his plans. What emotion does that elicit in you? What response would that bring forth from you? Because for Jesus, it's compassion. Mark continues, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd and he began to teach them many things. The frustration, the annoyance, the irritation, the impatience that you might feel are foreign and distant to Jesus. His first response is compassion. Well, let's just stop here and listen carefully because this is something you cannot miss about the heart of our Savior. Jesus' heart is full of compassion for the undeserving. Jesus is not sour or distant or unconcerned with the crowds, but compassionate. Now, the Greek word compassion literally means to be moved in one's bowels. Now think about that. The, the Greeks uh, had, a different, um, had a different center of emotions. For us, where do your emotions come out of? They come out of your heart. But for the Greeks, they didn't come from your heart. They came from your intestines. They came from your bowels. If you loved someone, you would tell them that they make your bowels move. <laughs> but to say that compassion is that which comes from inward means that compassion comes from deep within the heart of Jesus. You see, the interesting thing about Jesus, compassion isn't something that he needs to summon. Compassion isn't something that he needs to ask the Father for. Compassion isn't something he needs to fake. Compassion isn't something that he needs to muster or discover. Compassion is already in his heart. It's present. It's available. It's brewing. So much so, Jesus' heart is so full of compassion that anyone who bumps up against Jesus, even someone who brushes up against Jesus, runs the risk of his compassion overflowing out of his heart and dousing them. Imagine after service, you head downstairs to the fellowship hall and you get yourself a cup of water. And as you're talking to somebody with this cup of water, one of those are running children who's had too much sugar, is running around the church. They trip and fall and they bump into you. And as they bump into you, they knock you over and you're trying to do something athletic to make sure the water in the cup doesn't spill, but it's too late. You're too slow. And so you see the water move left and right and left and right. And as it goes right, it falls over the edge of the cup. And you think, oh no, I have to clean this up. You look down. What do you expect to see? A puddle of water. It's obviously going to be water. In what world are you holding a cup of water? A kid knocks into you, you spill, you look down and what is that? A puddle of milk. There is no chance that if you're holding a cup of water and you're knocked, 
that milk will come out. It's impossible. Milk will only come out of the cup if milk is in the cup. But water comes out of the cup because water is in the cup. This is a picture of our heart. What comes out of us when there are stressors, when there are agitators, when the heat is real and grinding up against us, what comes out of our heart reveals what's already in our heart. When you have a short fuse with your kids, when you're impatient toward your spouse or your boyfriend or girlfriend, when you're annoyed at your parents, when you're snappy at your coworkers, when you're filled with rage because that driver is driving 10 miles below speed limit on the left side of the lane, why do those responses come out of your heart? Because they're already in your heart. It's not like you're brewing with love and patience and understanding, and then miraculously you're bummed and, oh, somehow impatience comes out. Where did that come from? Grumbling, frustration. Water never becomes milk, friends. That's not how it works. The unfiltered natural response of your heart shows you the condition of your heart. What is brewing and brimming in your heart? So the fact that we get to this story in Jesus, who's planned this trip with his disciples to rest and get away, his plans are rudely interrupted by selfish, inconsiderate people. And yet what happens when he's bumped? What comes out of the overflow of his heart? It's compassion. Compassion is the heart of Christ. You have to understand this. The crowd didn't deserve his compassion. The crowd didn't do anything to earn his compassion. They brought nothing. They contributed nothing. They added nothing. They didn't come to Jesus like the wise men came bearing gifts. They didn't come to Jesus like the centurion with great faith who said, if you speak a word, my servant will be healed. They didn't come to Jesus like Mary who was humbly sitting at his feet because she chose the better portion. They didn't come to Jesus like the Syrophoenician woman who said, even dogs eat the crumbs off the floor. They didn't even come to this gathering with enough food for themselves. They came with nothing other than their need, their helplessness, and their lostness. They came, as verse 34 tells us, like sheep without a shepherd. And that's what stirs the heart of Christ toward them. Let me ask you, friends, as we think about this, when you think of the Jesus you are familiar with, the Jesus you've constructed in your mind, the Jesus you imagine the Jesus you believe in, or maybe the Jesus you reject, the Jesus you're walking with, or maybe the Jesus you're pushing away, does he look anything like this? I think some of us have a misguided understanding of Jesus where yes, we understand, yes, he has some compassion, but we also think, but he's also full of condemnation. And the way you think of Jesus is that, man, he can be compassionate, but that's only toward the deserving. Toward me, he's condemning. He's critical. Toward me, Jesus is disappointed. Oh, Jesus, he's sick of me. He's sick and tired of how many times I've failed him, of how many times I've broken promises of how I only come to him when my life is in utter shambles. Some of you think of Jesus as full of condemnation. Well, friends, 
I'm not here this morning to alleviate your conscience or to absolve you of your guilt. I'm not here to try to make you feel better about yourself and say, hey, you're not so bad. Cheer up. Go easy on yourself. But I am here to say the word of God tells you this morning that Jesus has a heart full of compassion toward the weak and the weary, the discouraged and the downtrodden, the screw-ups, the failures, those who don't have it all together, those who are overwhelmed, those who are hurt, those who are betrayed, those who are guilty, and those who are ashamed. Here's our reality, friends. Nobody deserves Jesus' compassion, but everybody can receive it. Nobody deserves it, but it's available for all. Now, here's what you need to know about the great crowd. Jesus has compassion on the great crowd. Now, the great crowd in verse 34, uh, Mark does something interesting because Mark treats the great crowd in his gospel sort of like they're a character in the story. And many times, Mark uses the great crowd um, to be a great obstacle in Jesus's ministry. The great crowd is always getting in the way of things getting done. It's kind of like, you know, a big guy who goes into a small, tiny store uh, whenever I'm, I'm with Eunice and she wants to go to one of those cute little boutique shops where they're selling really, you know, elaborate, delicate ceramics. I mean, I feel like a bull in a china shop. <laughs> I put my arms like this and I'm so scared of moving. I don't want to knock something over and pay a million bucks. I always feel like I'm in the way. And so I'm that husband who's waiting outside, not because I'm bored, not because I'm uninterested, but because I don't want to be an obstacle. The crowd is like that. The crowd is just always in the way. They're always an obstacle. Let me give you a few examples. Mark chapter two, verse four. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let the bed on which the paralytic lay. The crowd was getting in the way of the friends bringing the paralytic. Mark three, verse nine. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him. Why? Because of the crowd, lest they crush him. They had no sense of personal space. They were pressing up on Jesus, physically endangering him. Mark 30, verse 20, then he went home and the crowd gathered again so they could not even eat. Even in our story today, the crowd is an obstacle. Jesus and his disciples are trying to get rest and the crowd is getting in the way. I draw your attention to the detail of the crowd because the crowd is not comprised of faithful people or favorable people. The crowd is a bunch of flaky people. As a collective whole, the crowd is only drawn to Jesus because he's popular, because he's in. Some are following Jesus only because they want to see a miracle. Some are following Jesus because they heard, man, there's some good drama whenever Jesus gets in a little scuffle with the religious leaders. Oh, I'd like to see some of that. Remember, reality TV didn't exist back then. They're following Jesus for entertainment. What is he going to do? What shocking thing is he going to say? In fact, you read through the gospel of Mark and you eventually find out who is it that demands the crucifixion of Christ? It's the crowds. Let me read you this lengthy description in Mark 15. We read in verse six, now at the feast, he, Pilate, used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in their insurrection, there was a man, man named Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. 
And he answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him released for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they, the crowd, cried out again, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? But they, the crowd, shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Friends, this is the crowd. There are a nameless, faceless character in Mark's gospel. They follow Jesus when it's fun and convenient, and they call on his crucifixion when they're done with him and tired of him. They care nothing for Jesus. And that's important because we get to Mark chapter 6, and when Jesus looks out, who does he see? He sees the great crowd. He knows they're going to betray him. He knows they're going to call out for his crucifixion. And yet he doesn't respond with distrust, anger, frustration, or indifference, but with merciful compassion. Let me tell you why this is good news for you and me. It's good news because we are the crowd. We are the people in the crowd. Now, here's the thing about the crowd. The crowd represents a mixed bag of people. Who's in the crowd? Saints, sinners, sufferers, seekers, skeptics, strays. There are all kinds of people in the crowd. Some of them gathered because they believed in him. Some wanted to believe in him. Some refused to believe in him. People in the crowd, they came with all kinds of motivations. Some had godly motivations. They knew Jesus. They wanted to follow him. They wanted to worship him. Others had wrong motivations. They wanted to catch Jesus slipping. They wanted him to say something that they could report as blasphemy. There were still others who had no motivation at all. They were simply doing their business. Saw a crowd following a man, had nothing better to do. And so hopped on the bandwagon. There are all kinds of people in the crowd. But despite this, notice that when Jesus sees the crowd, he doesn't weed out for them those who deserve his compassion and those who don't. Jesus doesn't make a list. He doesn't check it twice. He doesn't see who's naughty or nice. He has compassion on all who came. Why? Simply because they came to him. Jesus had compassion on all those who come. Why? Because they come to him. This morning, you and I, we are a crowd of sorts. In this congregation, there are all kinds of people. Some of you believe, some of you don't believe. Some of you want to believe, some of you vow to never believe. Some of you are convinced he's real. Some are curious, is he real? We've all walked into this room. We've left at various kinds of situations, circumstances, scenarios behind. You come in and your heart is heavy. All all of us. Some of your hearts are heavy with questions, some with concerns, some with doubts, some with fears, some with worries, some with anxieties. And so you come in or some of you are scared. Some of you are lonely. Some of you are hurting. Some of you are lost. Some of you walked in here confidently and others of you walked in here apprehensively. Some of you come in without a second thought and others were wrestling last night whether to step through these doors. This is the reality of the crowd. We are the crowd, a mixed bag of people. But the good news is this. However you come to Jesus, from wherever you come to Jesus, with whatever you come to Jesus, when you come to Jesus, his heart abounds in merciful compassion for you. 
When you come to Jesus, his arms are never crossed. His brows furrowed, his face stern. Not our Jesus, his arms are wide open. And a smile warm and his welcome is genuine. Friends, the question is never, how will Jesus respond to me if I come to him? The question is always, will you receive the compassion that he offers? So go to Jesus, fling yourself upon the one who can catch you and hold you. Because in him you'll discover that there's a waterfall of compassion without a hint of condemnation. You see, Mark is trying to convince you of this. Jesus is compassionate. But he, he doesn't just want you to think, oh, Jesus feels a lot of compassion. I feel a lot of compassion. You feel a lot of compassion. Mark's saying he doesn't just feel compassion. He acts with compassion. And he does this in the story. Obviously, there's a hungry, helpless crowd in front of him. And what does he do? What is his miracle? His miracle is to provide food for all who come without distinction. Isn't it amazing? He turns no one away. Verse 42 says, they all ate and were satisfied. All of them ate. Those who loved him, those who hated him. Those who wanted him, those who wanted him dead. They all ate and were satisfied. But in this feeding miracle, there's an interesting detail because if you notice, although Jesus is providing the miracle through bread and fish, there is actually an emphasis on the bread. I don't know if you noticed that. There's a lot more emphasis on the bread than there is on the fish. Look at verse 41. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. It's almost like the fish is an afterthought in the story. The fish is only included because, you know, there was actually fish there and you can't ignore that. So the loaves are emphasized. And then Mark concludes this story in verse 44. And he says, those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Well, what about the fish? Mark says, no, don't worry about that. They ate the loaves. And then this section in Mark 6 ends in verses 51 and 52, this larger section after Jesus walks on the water, we read, and they were utterly astounded for they did not understand about the loaves but their hearts were hardened. They didn't, it doesn't say they didn't understand the loaves and the fish. They didn't understand the loaves. Why is Mark emphasizing the bread so much? And the reason is because the bread pointed to something else. The bread pointed to another display of Jesus's merciful compassion, his most ultimate act of compassion. Because later in the gospel, in Mark, we read these shocking words, Mark 14. And as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, what is my body? This bread is my body. Jesus is saying that the bread he came to offer was himself. This is Christ's compassion on full display. That Jesus saw your spiritual dilemma. He saw that you were made by God and made for God. And yet you had no relationship with God that your sin made you unable and unwilling to do anything. And so Jesus came for you and he entered into the sinful mess of humanity. And how did he offer himself? He offered himself as the bread of heaven. And great compassion, he offered up his body to be broken. And on the cross, as Jesus was nailed and pierced, he was broken. He was torn in two as he died as the sacrifice in your place. And because Jesus was broken as the bread was, 
So now you and God can be mended. You see, Jesus exercised compassion toward the crowd when he provided physical bread, but his greatest act of compassion is to the world, wherein which he offers himself as the living bread. He offers himself as the way in which the lost in sin might be found, the stuck in sin might be delivered, the enslaved in sin might be freed. You see, when you see Jesus as Mark wants you to see Jesus, you hear an invitation and the Savior of the world saying, come and receive my compassion. And so again and again, we find ourselves going to him. Coming to Jesus once is never enough. Coming to Jesus a million times is never too much. What is the right amount of times to come to Jesus? The sense of need for Jesus is the right amount of times to come to Jesus. Let me end with this, because this is the cherry on top of the good news. The feeding of the 5,000 is in Mark 6, but if you look two chapters later in Mark 8, Mark 8 begins like this. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and I have nothing to eat. This whole thing sounds oddly familiar, doesn't it? It's not an editorial mistake. Mark didn't repeat the story twice. It's an entirely different scene, an entirely different story. But once again, we see Jesus with a great crowd. Once again, we see the crowd is empty-handed and hungry. And once again, we see Jesus having compassion on those who have come to him. It happened in Mark 6. It happens again in Mark 8. And that little pattern, it kind of sums up the Christian life. What is the Christian life? The Christian life is a series of one, once again, after another. You come to Jesus. He gives you compassion. You come to Jesus again. And he gives you compassion. And you keep coming to Christ again and again. And his compassion for you never runs out. So you need to go to Jesus once again. Today, go to Jesus for compassion if you're hurt. And once again, go to Jesus tomorrow when you're discouraged. Tuesday, go to Jesus when you're lonely. Wednesday, go to Jesus when you're afraid. Thursday, go to Jesus when you're worried. Friday, go to Jesus when you're tired. Saturday, go to Jesus when you're ashamed. See, friends, I dare you. Discover the limits of his merciful compassion to you. I dare you to discover. Because you will realize that there is no end to it. It'll take you eternity to find the end of the depth of his compassion for you. Come to Jesus and receive his compassion. Would you pray with me?